Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Actually, we will uh, drop back into chapter 4 and begin reading in verse 31 and go over into chapter 5, looking this morning at the subject matter, tending to our witness. Tending to our witness. I want to echo what Kevin said a few moments ago at the beginning of the service, uh, just thanking those who participated in the events of the past couple of days here. Uh, 262 people went through 282 classes. Now, folks, that's quite an achievement, isn't it? 282 classes that were involved on the campus Uh, The past couple of days from all over North, as people from all over North Carolina arrived here for training in disaster relief. As I've mentioned to you before, uh, Southern Baptist disaster relief efforts are the third largest in the nation behind the American Red Cross and the Salvation Army. Uh, And North Carolina Baptists have a huge presence in the nationwide Southern Baptist efforts. Uh, We go into areas after a disaster. We help clean up and we help uh, people get back on their feet and reestablished. And that's a tremendous witness to be in these communities and help people put their lives back together again after they've suffered very trying times uh, in in their lives. So again, thank you for those who took part in that Uh, in any way. You know, we've just come through one of the two most important holidays in the life of the church. We know that much of the world does not believe what we believe. How are we going to make a difference? Sometimes it feels like swimming against the stream. But folks, we need to remember that we are not alone. Jesus said at the end of the Great Commission, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Think about that. He's with us to the end of the age. When is the end going to be? We don't know. Now, some people are saying the end of the world is going to be tomorrow. April 23rd, 2018. Don't believe it. Okay? Jesus said we won't know when the end is going to be. But we do know however long we have to wait for the end, we have Christ with us now. That much we know. He promised. And so again, how are we going to make a difference? How will the world pay attention to the Easter story? How can we ensure that the world may be more likely to believe our message? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about that out of Ephesians chapter 5. Would you stand with me, please? And let's begin reading in verse 31 of chapter 4. And we will read over into chapter 5 down to verse 18. The Apostle Paul said, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. 
Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Father, I pray that you would help us give attention to our witness. We know that the Christian life is not simply about doctrine, but it's about doctrine put to practice in life. It's about our conduct as well. We're to live out the gospel. Jesus said we're to live as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And men are to see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Lord, help us again to tend to our witness. That if we have unbelieving family members and unbelieving friends or business associates, that they would be more apt to listen to our message because the lives that they see us live. Use this message today for your work and purpose in somebody's life. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We know that children are great imitators. Every parent knows this. You have to be very careful about what you say or do in front of children because one thing we know is they're going to pick up on it and it's not going to be long before we see them doing exactly what we've done. Moms know about little girls as little girls try on their mom's dresses and high heels and they put on mom's makeup and and even her lipstick and a little boy might be standing on a chair in the bathroom and and he's got his dad's razor out and, and he's playing like he's shaving. Children are great 
imitators. Well, Paul says here that as dearly beloved children, we are to be imitators of God. The word in verse 1 for imitate or follow, as some translations have it, is literally the word from which we get our word mimic. We are to mimic God. We are to imitate God. We are to be, we are to live as his children. And there is to be a family likeness that is seen in us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on this verse said, This is the highest statement of Christian doctrine that one can conceive of or even imagine. He went on to say, It is really staggering. It is almost incredible. But nonetheless, here it is. Now folks, we've got to ask ourselves, Is this even possible? How can a Christian be like God in such a dark world? Is Paul talking about some kind of unrealistic standard here? No. We see that it is not only realistic, but it is actually expected of the child of God. Now, obviously, there are those incommunicable attributes of God that we can never emulate. Theologians talk about the incommunicable or the non-communicable attributes versus those that are communicable. The incommunicable attributes are those uh, aspects of God's nature and character that belong to God and only to God. For example, I think of the aseity or the aseity of God. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that, of that word, the aseity of God. Anybody? No? Theologians talk about the aseity of God. The insanity of God is the fact that God is self-existent. He needs nothing. And he certainly needs nothing from us. We do not add to God. We do not enrich God. Modern man loves to think that somehow or another God needs him. That God needs man. But that's absolutely absurd. God is completely satisfied in himself. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, The Father hath life in himself. Paul, preaching the sermon at Mars Hill in Acts 17, said, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And then Moses in Psalm 90 says, Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so the aseity of God is an attribute that cannot be communicated to us. God is eternal. God is self-existent. 
Another example of non-communicable or incommunicable attributes of God would be his omnipotence. God is all-powerful, we are not. Still another is that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. I think of King David in Psalm 139 said, God, if I go this direction, you're there. This direction, you're there. This direction, that direction, this direction, that direction. Everywhere I turn, God, you are there. God's omnipresence. God is also omniscient. He knows everything. Has it ever dawned on you that nothing ever dawns on God? God doesn't have to be a student. God doesn't have to learn. God's omniscient. And so again, these are attributes that belong only to God. But again, Paul is saying here that we are to mimic God. We are to imitate God. So obviously, Paul is speaking of those attributes that are communicable attributes. Things that God does share with us. That would be things like his love, his mercy, his holiness. The Bible says, for example, that we love because he first loved us. And also the scripture says that we are to be holy because God is holy. Now obviously those are the kinds of attributes that Paul must have in mind here when he says that we are to mimic God. Instead of walking as the pagan Gentiles walk, chapter 4 verse 17 speaks of that. Paul says you're not to walk as the pagan Gentiles walk. Sometimes Gentiles is used in the Bible in nothing more than a, uh, an ethnic sense. Anybody who is a non-Jew. And it's not stated in a negative fashion. Other times the word Gentile is stated in a negative fashion. To speak of those who are pagan unbelieving Gentiles. He says in chapter 4, we are not to mimic them. We are not to imitate people in the world. We are not to live like the average man in the world lives and conducts himself. But he says here that we are to mimic God. What's he speaking of? How can we do that? First thing I want you to see this morning is that we are to walk in love. This is the only point we're going to cover this morning. But now don't get too excited about getting a short sermon because just having one point means I can talk longer about one point. But we're going to see over the next several weeks that we're to walk in purity, we're to walk in light, we're to walk in wisdom, and we're to walk in the Spirit. All of these are ways that we can imitate God or mimic God. And Paul begins by saying that we're to walk in love. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, folks, the walk of the believer is of great interest to the apostles as they write the New Testament letters. They speak often of our walk. Now, of course, our walk refers to our conduct. 
And so we know that the Christian life is not simply about doctrine, what we believe. It is a matter of that, but it is doctrine put to practice. It is doctrine lived out in our everyday lives. John R.W. Stott says we are to live as members of God's new society. I like that phrase. God's new society. The church is to be God's new society. Jesus said to his disciples, you're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. We're to live differently. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul said that we're to walk worthy of our Christian calling. In verse 17 there, he said that we're to walk differently from the world. In chapter 5, verse 8, he's going to tell us that we need to walk in light. In chapter 5, verse 15, he's going to tell us that we need to walk in wisdom. So again, our walk is very important for us to give attention to. We're to walk in love. Now let's think about three statements related to that point. The fact that we're to walk in love. First of all, I want you to see with me this morning the significance of walking in love. The significance. What does walking communicate to you? It communicates that there is to be progress. There's to be growth. In the Christian life, you don't just stand still. If you're standing still, you're growing cold. And so either you're moving towards the Lord or you're moving away from Him. Those are the only options that we have. Walking implies progress. It also implies something that is to be habitual. We're to walk in love. It is to be a way of life. It is to be our habit. We're not to say, oh, you know what? I I, I did one loving act this year. That's all I'm going to do. That's my quota for this year. I'm not going to do any more loving acts. No, he says this is to be habitual. This is to be the way we walk. We're to walk in love. Growing in love is a continuing need. Growing and walking in love is a continuing need for every believer because as the Bible says, love fulfills God's law. Romans 13 says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. The significance of walking in love. But I also want you to see the similarity of walking in love. Paul says here that we are to be imitators of God in this regard. When we walk in love, we are being more like Christ. How did Christ live his life? How did he conduct himself? 
And folks, we're not just being children, but Paul says here that we are being beloved children. Some children grieve their parents' hearts while others are beloved children. We are to be beloved children by walking in love. When we imitate God by walking in love, we are being His own dearly beloved children. Alexander the Great once discovered a coward in his army who was also named Alexander. And he went to the soldier and he told the soldier, you either need to renounce your cowardice or you need to renounce your name. Well, those who carry God's name are to be imitators of God by walking in love. Now, we know in the first century world, in the Greek language, there were a number of different words used for love. I'm not going to be exhaustive in this list, but there was one common word for love that never finds itself on the pages of the Greek New Testament. It was common in everyday society, but it didn't show up in the Bible. And that was the word eros, love, sensual love. We get our word erotic from that. Never shows up in the New Testament. But then a very common word for love, maybe the most common word for love in the Greek New Testament, is friendship love, brotherly love, phileo love. But the highest and holiest word for love of all in the Greek New Testament is agape love. Self-giving, self-sacrificing type love. A type of love where you can look at the needs of somebody else, set your own needs and desires aside, and you reach out to them and you meet their needs. It's the same kind of love that God had for us, that God expressed for us in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Agape love. And that's the word Paul is using here. Who's the greatest example of agape love? Jesus is. Jesus set the pattern. Paul says here in Ephesians 5 2, Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Now let's think about children again. One thing that children love to do is they love to trace. They'll put a picture down, they'll put a blank page on top of that, press them together hard, and they'll trace the design underneath the blank page. Our lives are to be laid down next to Christ. And it is as though we are to trace his life in regards to love. How did he love us? Paul says here, he gave himself for us. He yielded up his earthly life completely so that you and I might be saved. The Bible says here that when Christ died for you on the cross, when he died for me, it was an offering to God that was like a fragrant aroma. God the Father was perfectly satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Christ's sacrifice was like a fragrant, pleasing aroma to the Father. And so Paul is saying here, in like fashion, when we love one another enough to sacrifice our wants and wishes for each other, through our, though our sacrifice has no redeeming quality in the same sense that Christ did, yet our sacrifice of love will also be pleasing to the Father. 
It brings joy to the father when he sees his children expressing agape love to one another. Walking in this type of love to one another. Sacrificing their needs and desires and wants for each other. Putting one another ahead of themselves. That is like a fragrant aroma to him. So we are to love as he loved. As I said earlier, the Bible says we love because he first loved us. We are able to love because we're so greatly loved. It ought to be the passion of every believer to love one another as God has loved us. His love is so great, so freeing, so liberating that we we want to not only experience it, but we want to, to share it. Now also you'll notice that that there is a therefore that connects chapter 4 with chapter 5. The word therefore. When you see a therefore in the scripture, you need to ask what it's there for. It connects these two chapters together. And so as we're obeying this admonition to walk in love, what are we going to be doing? It's, it's connected back to verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. The two things are connected. So we see there the snapshot of walking in love. The snapshot of walking in love. We don't have to guess at what it means to walk in love. The Bible tells us. The Bible gives us a snapshot here of what walking in love is going to look like. When we walk in love... We will be forgiving one another. Forgiving one another. A great need in our world today. Have y'all noticed how angry it seems like everybody's getting in the world today? You pay much attention to the news. Do you see interviews and everything that's going on? It, Connie and I were talking about this the other, other day. It just seems like everybody is at everybody's throats about something. One of the signs of the end of times. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that men are going to be irreconcilable. We're seeing that. But in the body of Christ, we're to be tenderhearted, kind to one another. We're to be forgiving one another. Forgiveness is perhaps the greatest indicator of all of whether or not we are walking in the likeness of God's love. In his commentary on Ephesians, John MacArthur points out that when we refuse to forgive, not only are we not expressing the heart of God, but we are actually profaning the very cross of Christ. The cross of Christ makes possible the forgiveness of sin. The cross of Christ makes possible the forgiveness of the trespass committed against us. When we can't forgive some trespass, we are trampling underfoot and profaning the very sacrifice of the Son of God. So as we see the world doing what the world's doing, you and I are to be different. 
tender-hearted, kind to one another, forgiving one another. Folks, what I'm getting at is that that's a way to walk in love, and that is a way that the world is going to see our witness, our conduct, and they're going to believe the Easter story. They're going to believe that Christ lives because they see his transformation at work in us. This week I was searching for all kinds of illustrations on forgiveness and going online and checking here and there and uh, top 10 stories of forgiveness. And I kept coming back to a story that I, I look back and, and I saw that I told you this story in 2006. I thought somebody might remember it. I kind of doubt it. But I kept coming back to this story because it was such a powerful story of forgiveness. Five days before Christmas, a stranger approached 10-year-old Christopher Carrier claiming to be a friend of his dad's. And he said, Christmas is coming. Christmas is approaching five days away. I want to buy your dad a special gift. Will you help me, Christopher? Christopher loved his dad. He said, yeah, I'll help you. Would you go to the store with me? Yeah, I'll go to the store with you. Come on, get in my vehicle. He, he got, Christopher got in this man's RV and they drove off. You know where this story's going. The driver took Christopher to a remote field claiming to be lost and asked Christopher to look at a map. So Christopher got sitting in the passenger seat, got a map out and was looking at the map. All of a sudden, as he's been over looking at the map, he, find, he feels something sharp in his back. The man has stabbed him with an ice pick. The man drove the wounded boy down a, a deserted dirt road, shot him in the left temple with his pistol, and he left him for dead in the alligator-infested Florida Everglades. Christopher lay unconscious for six days until a driver happened down that deserted road and found him. Miraculously, he survived his injuries, although he's been left permanently blinded in his left eye by the gunshot. Because he was unable to identify his attacker, police couldn't make an arrest. For a long time, Christopher remained frightened, just frightened in his life, scared all the time. Finally, he got an invitation from a friend to go to a church hayride. And at the close of that hayride, they had a big youth service, and Christopher trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior. He continued to grow in Christ. Several years later, Christopher felt the Holy Spirit tugging at his heart and leading him into the ministry. And so he started making preparations in his life for ministry. In 1996, a detective told Christopher over the phone that a man had confessed to the crime that had cost him his left eye and almost cost him his life. The man's name was David McAllister. Christopher made plans to visit the feeble and and now blind man himself who was living in a nursing home, was almost 80 years old. Christopher learned from detectives some of the background that had led up to that attack 
all those years before. McAllister had been hired by Chris's father to work for him, but Christopher's dad called him drunk on the job, and so he fired him. And so the senseless attack on Christopher was this man trying to take revenge on his boss. As Christopher now talked to the old man, at first McAllister denied having anything to do with the crime. Christopher kept talking. Finally, the man softened and broke, in tears broke, and admitted what he had done in trying to take Christopher's life. Christopher said, Sir, what you meant for evil, God's turned into a wonderful blessing. And he went on to share with his attacker how God had allowed his wounds to become an open door to share the good news of Christ with others. Christopher went home and told his wife and kids about meeting David McAllister. The entire family began visiting on a daily basis the nursing home where McAllister lived. During one Sunday afternoon visit, Christopher shared the gospel with the man and the man said that he wanted to be saved. Christopher led David McAllister to faith in Christ. A couple of days later, McAllister died peacefully in his sleep. Christopher Carrier says, This is not a story of regret. This is a story of redemption. I can't wait to see him again someday in heaven. Wow. That's a powerful example of walking in love, being an imitator of God and and forgiving others. Forgiving just as God in Christ forgave us. God in Christ has forgiven you and forgiven me despite everything that we have ever done. Folks, if somebody deserved your forgiveness, it wouldn't be called forgiveness anymore, would it? The very word forgiveness implies what? It's it's something that they've done, some genuine transgression. They don't deserve mercy, but you show them mercy as God in Christ has showed us. Am I talking to somebody in here this morning? Maybe a young person at school or somebody on the job. Maybe even talking to a husband and wife about their marriage. Is there somebody that needs to forgive somebody in their life as God in Christ forgave you. You can't, but Christ in you and through you can. I think also about the 20th president of the United States, James Garfield, before becoming president. He had been a lay preacher. In his denomination, he was ambidextrous. He could write simultaneously Greek in one hand and Latin in the other hand. He's a brilliant man. After six months in office, he was shot in the back with a revolver. He never lost consciousness at the hospital. The the doctor probed the wound with his little finger trying to find the bullet. He couldn't find it. He kept getting different kinds of probes. Still, he couldn't locate the bullet. They took Garfield back to Washington, D.C. Despite the summer heat, they tried to keep him comfortable. He was growing weaker and weaker and weaker. Teams of doctors kept working on the president. Nobody could get the bullet out. 
out. In desperation, they turned to Alexander Graham Bell, who was working on a little device called the telephone, to see if Bell could help them. He couldn't. The president finally died in September, but not from the bullet wound. But the wound itself, where everybody had kept digging and probing, an infection had set in and he died. Not from the injury, but from the infection. That's how a lack of forgiveness is. It's like an infection that poisons. Am I talking to somebody here today that's Poisoned because you've not forgiven and you're carrying that. Walk in love, be an imitator of God, walking in love by forgiving that person that you need to forgive. It'll set you free. A second example of how to walk in love is, is what he also says in verse 32 of chapter 4 that again connects with verse 1 of chapter 5. We're to show kindness. We're to be tenderhearted. Show kindness to other people. If we return bad for bad, something just stays stirred up. But if we respond to bad with tenderhearted kindness, we break the cycle. Former televangelist Jim Baker speaks of an event of great kindness shown to him after his release from prison. He says, when I was transferred to my last prison, Franklin Graham said that he wanted to help me when I got out with a job, a house to live in, and a car. It was my fifth Christmas in, in prison. I thought it over and said, Franklin, you can't do this. It'll hurt you. The Graham family does not need the baker's baggage. Franklin Graham, he said, looked at me and said, Jim, you were my friend before. You're my friend now. If somebody doesn't like it, they'll just have to get over it. So when I got out of prison, the Graham sponsored me and paid for a house for me to live in and gave me a car to drive. The first Sunday out, Ruth Graham called the halfway house I was living in at the Salvation Army and asked permission for me to go to Montreat Presbyterian Church with her and the family uh, that Sunday morning. When I got there, the pastor welcomed me, sat me with the Graham family. There were like two whole entire rows of the Graham family. I think every Graham, uh, aunts and uncles and cousins all were there that day. Baker says the organ began playing. The place was full except for a seat next to me. Then the doors opened and in walked Ruth Graham. She walked down the aisle. She sat next to me. She sat next to inmate number 07407-058. I'd only been out of prison 48 hours. But she told the world that morning that Jim Baker was her friend. Kindness. Tender-hearted kindness. Again, who do you need to show tender-hearted kindness towards? And, unfor and, and, and forgiveness where there's been unforgiveness. This is a way 
that you and I are to imitate God, to mimic God by showing forgiveness and tenderhearted kindness to people who don't deserve it. Aren't you glad God did that for people who don't deserve it? Folks, let's remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13. He said, a new commandment I give to you, which is really not a new commandment, that you love one another. All the world will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. All the hostility we see going on in the world. How is the world going to believe our message about the resurrection of Jesus Christ when they see you and I walking in love, forgiving one another our trespasses and showing tender-hearted kindness to one another? Our conduct. Living as God's new society. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me, please? Have you experienced God's love, God's forgiveness, God's tender-hearted mercies and kindness? Have you experienced that in your life? The new birth where God made you a new person from the inside out, washed all your sins away and cleansed you. It may be that somebody is here this morning. In fact, I would assume there's probably several people here this morning who have never experienced God's love and forgiveness. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been working on you. That's the Holy Spirit drawing you to faith in Christ. That's what He does. Come to Christ today. Experience God's love and forgiveness. As those who have experienced that, God's love and forgiveness to you, His tender-hearted compassion for you, allows you to show the same to others around you. How are you doing at that? Are you mimicking God? Are you imitating God in that regard? Who am I speaking to that needs to show that kind of love and forgiveness and, and kindness to somebody this week? Maybe somebody you've been at odds with for no telling how long. You need to mimic God. You say they don't deserve that. No, they don't, but neither did you. Forgive them. It sets you free. We're going to go on in coming weeks to talk about purity, walking in purity, walking in light, walking in wisdom, walking in the Spirit. Ways that we can tend to our witness. 
Make a commitment in your life that you want to tend to your witness. God puts us in a mission field every day. Your mission field is those people around you. And they're looking at your life, not just listening to your message. They're looking at your life. What do they see? What they see will determine if they believe your talk. Would you say, God, help me to tend to my witness too? Because I want people to see Christ in me. Father, speak to your people. Especially to that one who needs your love and your forgiveness. Draw them to Christ. And Lord, to that one who's experienced your love and forgiveness, but they're struggling to forgive somebody that they know. Give them strength this week to go to that person and forgive them. Lord, help us to live as your new society. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.